Welcome to the First Baptist Church Brunswick podcast. Join us as we desire to lead people into a deep and thriving relationship with Jesus Christ. My name is Jeff Cannon, and uh, I know what you're thinking. You should have paid attention when your pastor last week said they were driving to Texas. Because that means somebody else is preaching the following Sunday. So, um, my wife Jessica, my sons Kirkland, Charlie, and Philip, uh, they're in here. Uh, my mother in law, Brenda, so you won't have to do the pity amen. She's got me. All right. Uh, she, it's so comforting to preach when she's, when she's in the audience. Um, our little girl, Ella, is not in here, and everybody said amen. Uh, if you've worked in the nursery, you know why. Uh, but here we are. So uh, if you don't know me, my wife Jessica and I have been uh, members her, here for about 16 years. Um, I've had a few opportunities uh, on Sunday morning here before, uh, most recently uh, in January. And um, if you're ever wondering why me, uh, you know, because I wonder that some too. Um, but if you get, you know, if you get far enough down past the line, past Chris Winford and Ethan Floyd and some, some very talented and gifted uh, people in our church, I, I guess you'll eventually get to me. Uh, and if you were wondering how that actually goes down, let me tell you a story about a guy named Otis Mounds. And um, if you're, and I guess I, I'm old now, so I, if you're an old Auburn fan, you might, you might know uh, who Otis Mound, Mounds is. I don't know if Hank Yergin's in here or not, but he might know. He may be the only one. Uh, but let me set the stage for you. So September 8th, 1990, uh, I was 12 years old, and that's, I mean, that's when the first college football game was, was kicking off. So it was the season opener, and it was the home opener at Jordan-Hare Stadium. And I was 12, and I was there. So what's interesting about the story is I was actually in attendance. Now, I don't remember this happening because I was 12, um, but, but it's very interesting what happened. So we played the, uh, the powerhouse Cal State Fullerton, and they don't even have a football team anymore. So... <laughs> Uh, they, were, they were in town uh, in Auburn, Alabama in 1990, and, uh, and you know, Pat Dye was the, the head football coach, and, uh, you know, I pulled it, it was funny, last night I pulled up the, the 1990 schedule on my phone, and, and Jessica's like, what in the world are you looking at? And I was like, I'm just looking at the schedule in 1990. I went to three Auburn games that year and didn't even know it. Um, it and I was like, wait a minute, I was there for that. So... Otis Mounds, he was a red shirt freshman, true freshman, a red shirt. And back then in 1990, there, you know, the no participation trophies, I mean some, okay, but a red shirt was really a red shirt. Like you did not go. You did not stand on the sideline. You were in the stands with everybody else. And so Otis Mounds was in the stands. And um, interestingly enough, you know, uh, at halftime, you know, Auburn was up, uh, you know, but they were, they were down two or three running backs. Like, they had, they had, like, guys, like, get hurt in the game. And so over the PA system, this guy goes, you know, will Otis Mounds please report to the locker room? And the, the dude, they were just fortunate that he was there. The guy got to come out of the stands, go into the locker room, and suit up for the second half. Now, he didn't get in. He, uh, he did eventually play that year and burned his red shirt. <clears throat> See, now it's like you get to play in four games and still keep it. So, I don't know. Anyway, participation trophies, medals for everyone, ribbons. Um, so, 
But Otis did. He ended up switching to defensive back a year or two later. In his senior year, it was 1993. He was, he was a, a starting defensive back for the undefeated Auburn Tigers in 1993. So there's your Otis Mound story. Uh, interestingly enough, he's a college coach now at Hampton University in Virginia. And I only mention that because I, I would imagine that our pastor is going to either, he's either watching now or listening, I don't know. Uh, or is it, you know, on the 600-hour drive back from West Texas, he, he, he might fire up the podcast. Um, his first coaching job, Otis Mounds, in 2012. You want to guess? Texas Tech. Guns up. Well, it's crazy. Anyway, that was for you, Pastor. I know you're listening out there somewhere. Uh, so anyhow, that should give you a better idea about how I ended up here. All right? Uh, you know, at least two or three really good men got to go down you know, and then they have to kind of pull me from my assigned seat right there in the middle. Uh, all right, so last week, Chris gave a, a great overview uh, for this series called Summer Love. And today, we're going to focus on brotherly love and examine the importance of quality friendship in Scripture. The title of the sermon is Brotherly Love, pretty simple, but I thought, you know, bromances in the Bible was going to, a little too millennial. Uh, but believe it or not, <clears throat> so... You know, I was sitting over, we were worshiping, and I'm, and I'm trying not to sing because I don't want the mic to be on, not because y'all would hear it, but because someone up there might have to hear it. And, you know, my hands are sweating, and I'm thinking, I don't normally get super nervous for this stuff because, you know, God's either going to take it or, or he's not. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't much matter. I'm, I'm just the, the vessel and the, the messenger, the voice, the volume, those kinds of things. And, and I'm over there thinking, you know, I'm a little nervous about preaching on this I'm being, you know, friendly because I'm not very. And, yeah. Uh, so, all right, now we've all laughed about it. It's all funny. Uh, I have outstanding friends in my life. Outstanding. And, and it's hard to study this for as long as I have and, and, and just not think that it's just another area that I fall short. So it's hard. Uh, and we'll talk about that some, not me, but about some of these relationships in here where I think it's important. Uh, but what makes it even crazier is the, the Walton High School class of 1996 decided to give me a senior superlative. And I know some of y'all know, because I've been a Sunday school teacher here for a long time, we've talked about it and it's ridiculous, but it was friendliest. It, it's true. I have the picture of the, the picture in the yearbook you know, on my phone. I'll show it to you later, I guess, if you want. But so when I was 17, I guess. Um, but now, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but really weird, you know. But, but I'll tell you. But I, like many of you, I value, I value close, loving friendship. Spurgeon on the subject. Friendship is one of the sweetest joys of life. Many might have fallen beneath the bitterness of their trial had they not found a friend. As we explore friendship in the Bible, we're going to start in the Old Testament. We'll be in Proverbs. And Proverbs provides a, a few strong verses that will be familiar if you're a seasoned believer. So you go to Proverbs chapter 17 for me. Okay, it'll be, it'll be on the screen, but it's chapter 17, verse 17, and the NASB says it like this. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Okay, so point number one, a friend loves at all times. 
A friend loves at all times. Just so we're clear, we're talking about good, solid, deeply embedded in your business friendship. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the shallow relationships that a lot of us have at, some, at work or in the neighborhood or even here sometimes, right? That those are not the relationships that we're talking about. This bond that we're discussing between two believing men or two believing women is strong. You know, they're, they're the Butch Cassidy to your Sundance kid. They're the Thelma to your Louise. Or if you want people not to, you know, die in the end or commit a lot of crimes, you know, they're the Buzz Lightyear to your Woody, I guess. <laughs> this kind of friend loves at all times. Do you have a friend like that? Are they close enough to you that, that they know that there are some times when you aren't so lovable, yet they love you anyway? Do they know your struggles? Men, does this friend know your weaknesses? Are you that friend for someone? This friend loves you no matter what. And as the rest of the verse says, was born for adversity. Now the word, the Hebrew word for brother, it literally means of the same father or of the same tribe. Okay? So this is, this is somebody that is really, really dug in deep with you. You know, do you have a friend like that? You know, when the chips are down, that you can count on this friend to be there for you. You know, when that, when that really tragic event happens or when that really amazing prayer gets answered, you know, outside of your spouse, like this is the next person that you call or contact. You know, do, do you have someone like that in your life? You know, and again, for you married folks, your spouse absolutely should, should be the first to get this info. Uh, but a friend who was born for adversity? Gotta have, gotta have one of those around. Turn the page, Proverbs 18, 24. Okay? It says this, you can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. All right. That's the last year. That's the last one. They're good, though. That's the last one. 1824. A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The Bible says it's impossible to have a bunch of friends like this, okay? And that'll be, it'll be overwhelming. You, you won't be able to go that deep with that many people, okay? That's what it means. You've got to choose your friends wisely. It's important. And I want to mention for you, the Bible scholars out there, that most, most ancient Jews viewed the second part of this verse as practically impossible to, to obtain unless this friend was the Messiah. Okay? In, in their eyes, not Jesus, because they didn't, they didn't know him, but the Messiah. That close. That close. And we'll touch on that, too, in the end. I think that's important for us to know. You know, doesn't the, doesn't the, don't these two verses describe Jesus perfectly anyway, right? A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity, you know, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. All of it. It's just good. Unconditional love, a champion for you in the times of need. It's just good. And there was a time years ago, not long after Jessica and I joined the church, that, that Wednesday nights we went out visiting. So, like, if you, if you were visiting today, it was your first time, and you filled out the, the contact card, right, and tore off the perforated thing, put it in the, in the plate. Back when we did all those things, right, we passed plates and stuff like that. Um, 
you know, somebody in the church office would collect all those names, and, and those names would be ready for us Wednesday night, and we'd, we'd get one or two and get the addresses, get in the car, and go knock on your door, right? And it just feels like it's been so long since something like that's gone down. Um, but I would ride in the car with two guys, and, and we may get to tell somebody about Jesus that night, but man, the car ride was awesome. It really, really was. You know, we would talk about marriage, about fatherhood and work and our weaknesses. And this wasn't a discipleship relationship, okay? We were, we were spiritual equals virtually, okay? And, but we were friends, and we loved each other no matter what. And I'm sure Walt and Jeff, I, I'm sure you remember. Now, it's not like that anymore. It's not. And it was pro- our relationship it was probably had a lot to do with proximity. Um, but, man, we were dug in then, weren't we? And, and, we, and we would share things now, and it would be like, hey, you know, I'm dealing with this and struggling with this, and, and, and you know, what do you guys think? And, and we had, you know, our kids were young and, uh, you know, there all those things, and, and we hadn't been married super long, not like we got it figured out now, but we hadn't been married a, you know, a real long time. But we got to lean on one another, and it was important, and it was valuable for me that I had friends like that that I had friends that stuck closer to me than a brother, and that I had friends born for adversity. It was important for me to have that. And, and that was just one example of a time when, when I was able to have something like that. And, and again, it, it's almost, it, it can be seasonal, I understand, um, but man, it was good. It was really good. And proximity had a lot to do with it. You know? So us, us being closed up in a car together once a week and driving around Brunswick, it mattered. It mattered. It really did. You know, a friend, a friend loves at all times. The second point, true biblical friendship is it's covenantial. And that is a word, by the way. Covenant's the root, okay? It's covenantial. It's a two-way street. It's mutual, all right? And one of the best examples of, of brotherly love in the Bible is David and Jonathan. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 18. So you have to go to the left. You have to go back to the left. 1 Samuel 18. And I'm going to read a handful of verses, okay? And um, David and Jonathan's history and their relationship is kind of spread out all over uh, 1 Samuel and a little bit of 2 Samuel, okay? But we're, we're really only going to kind of concentrate on these four verses. And this is, it's, it's practically, it's when they met, okay? So... I don't know really where we are as a church or how we collectively think who Jonathan was because we don't talk about him a lot. But before David killed Goliath, Jonathan had his own hero of the people moment. It's in 1 Samuel 14. And John, you, don't have to, you don't have to go there, but Jonathan, he, who's the son of King Saul, right? He's the, he's the firstborn son of the king, the only king that the Jewish people had ever had. And they've been in and out, all these battles with the Philistines and things of that nature. And he, he snuck out of camp one night as a young man. He snuck out of camp with his armor bearer. He crossed some treacherous terrain, and he ended up picking a fight with 20 Philistines. And he killed all of them. His armor bearer killed a couple, but between the two of them, they killed all 20. And then God sent an earthquake, and everybody in the Philistine camp got freaked out, and they went home. It was a huge victory. Now, this is pre-Goliath, right? But it was a huge victory uh, you know, for the Jewish people. And Jonathan was a hero. He was looked upon by the people as the, as the next man up. 
Okay, I just want you to think about that because we, we don't talk about it a lot, about what it was really like, David's struggles, uh, you know, knowing that as a young boy that he was to be king and then to, to have the next guy in line really be like fitting, you know, probably, probably would have been a much better king than his dad anyway. All right, so I found that, I found that pretty important. So, you know, you know, this was a huge victory. The son of the king got it done. He was a bold and courageous warrior, and he proved it to everybody, and very much so like David. He was a little bit older, but they were kindred spirits. So I'm going to read these four verses. Now the NASB says this, 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4. It says, now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day, took David that day, and did not let him return to his father's house. Verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So when he had finished speaking to Saul, talking about David, so this is kind of the the post-killing Goliath debriefing. Okay, David has killed Goliath, and, and he's been brought in front of Saul, and, and they have a conversation. And Jonathan's there, and he's there because he's, he's, he's the man. He's the next guy, so he's always in his father's presence. And he hears David sh- you know, share his heart about his confidence. Think about it, right? The, when he went to kill Goliath, like, no one's going to talk about my God like that. You know? And, and God told me he was going to deliver the Philistine to me. You know, and just this confidence and this faith that he showed in God. And Jonathan is standing there in, in their presence hearing that and just said, man, this guy, I love this kid. This guy's awesome. We're a, we're a lot alike, you know. So when Davis, David finished the after killing Goliath conversation, his fame in Israel was assured. He performed a remarkably heroic deed and was initially welcomed by the leadership of Israel. And then, and then this important bit of scripture. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And in, in the King James, said, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan, the son of Saul, he's the, the remarkably brave man of faith who initiated a one-man war against the Philistines previously. Jonathan was a lot like David. They were very similar. They were approximately the same age, though Jonathan was probably at least five years older. They both were bold, both were men of, uh, had great trust in God and had great faith, and both were men of action. But most of all, both had a real relationship with God. And at the same time, Jonathan and David were different. I think this is important for us to note. Jonathan was the firstborn son of a king, and David was the lastborn son of a farmer. This made Jonathan more than a prince. He was the crown prince. By everyone's expectation, Jonathan would be the next king of Israel. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. So this happened after David had finished speaking. Jonathan heard David give this extended explanation to really share his heart about who he was, his faith in the living God, and Jonathan knew that he and David had the same heart. So they could not be such close friends until Jonathan knew that about David. And the way most people think, Jonathan was the one that had the most fear of David, right? He had the most to lose, yet he loved David because what they had in common, this real relationship with the Lord God was bigger than any difference. So Jonathan turns out, 
Jonathan is one of the most humble and faithful followers of God in all of Scripture. And he was to be, the, he was to be only the second king ever of God's people. And his behavior and actions on the battlefield supported the fact that he was well-suited for the job. But he meets David, and he gives immediately, what's he do? He gives him his robe, his armor, his sword, and his belt. Now, what kind of humble person do you have to be to put yourself in a situation like that? I don't know how your relationships work. I don't know how your friendships are. But these guys, Jonathan had everything to lose. But his soul was knit solid, was knit solid to David's. And he loved him. And he was willing to lay it, to lay it all down. It's crazy to me. He's been told his whole life that he's next. His whole life. But he, loves, but he loves David and he loves God so much that he refuses to stand in the way of God's plan for his people. The Hebrew word for knit is kasher. Now, if you speak Hebrew, which I'm sure some of you do, you're supposed to roll the R. I'm not going to. It's kasher. All right? Uh, it means to tie to, you know, physically or mentally, to bind together. And what's not really mentioned here but is later in Scripture is how much David loved Jonathan back. Their love for each other was mutual. They entered into a covenant together. I know it says Jonathan entered into a covenant with David, but guys, that's mutual. It's, it's something that is agreed upon by, between two parties. Okay, so true biblical friendship uh, is covenantial. All right, it's mutual. It's not one, it's a relationship, it's a two-way street. It is not one-sided. Okay, it's not one-sided. And Scripture shows us that Jonathan will support and protect David until his own death, defeated in battle by the Philistines alongside his father Saul. And after David is rightly the king, he finds Jonathan's last surviving son because they, they enter into another covenant. We're not going to get there. But they enter into another co covenant when they know that the end is near. Okay, And Jonathan just says, you know, just promise me that you will spare my family. Because what happened in those days when a, a new you know, king came in and they were a part of a different family, what'd they do to the old king family? They killed them all. All of them. Everyone had to die just so there was no one to, you know, raise an army and challenge the throne. Okay, so Jonathan just said, hey man, just do me one thing when you become king. Take care of my family. And, and David ends up doing it. Uh, he finds Jonathan, it's, it's 2 Samuel chapter 9, but he finds, he finds, uh, Jonathan's last surviving son, who happens to be a cripple, tells him that he's going to take care of him, that he's going to eat frequently at the king's table, and then he restores all of his grandfather's lands to him. Not Jonathan's lands, but King Saul's lands to Jonathan's son. So he does it. And, he, and, if, and if you read 2 Samuel 9 verse 1, it says, I'm doing it for Jonathan's sake. Is there anyone out there, anyone out there that's related to my brother Jonathan that I, can, that I can bless for Jonathan's sake? So for those of you that have a biblical friendship like that, our culture doesn't really do covenants, but I'm sure you have an unspoken agreement. You're there for each other, period. You can call them. It doesn't matter when, period. Okay, and again, like I've got some friends in here now. Their dads aren't trying to kill me, I don't think. Wayne, we all right? Okay, I'm, you know, Chad doesn't have to shoot three arrows into my yard, 
you know, to tell me that his dad's coming or something, okay? So it's just not like that anymore, all right? But, but we, do, we do have an agreement that we will care for one another, that we will take care of one another's families, that will be there. It's important. Remember what Proverbs 18 said, you can't have a bunch of relationships like this. You can't have a bunch. It's impossible. It'll ruin you. And if you're like me and you have a friend or two that's knit to your soul, then you know what a blessing it truly is. Now, you can't have mine. They're taken. Okay? And I'll be the first to tell you that I'm spoiled. All right? But I'm the one that finds it difficult to stand in the gap for these guys be, be, you know, because of that. I find it hard to stand in the gap the way that they do for me. And, and a lot of it's just circumstantial, but a whole lot of it is because I struggle with pride. And so it's hard for me to think outside of myself and my, my children and my wife and my four walls. That's hard for me to do. Okay? Because if, you know, if anybody ever asks me, what do I struggle with? What do you deal with this thing? It's, it's pride. And so that makes me not a very good friend. And, and while you're, when you're studying this stuff and you know you got to stand up here in front of your friends and preach this stuff, it's hard. I need you to be better than me. I need you to be a better friend to your friends than I am to mine. And I'm working on it, I promise. I'm working on it. Dude's trying to choke and I can't eat or something. And I text him, what can I do? Can I come by? No, we're good, we're good. It's whatever. I wish, they could, I wish they called on me more, but then the fact that they don't means they're living pretty blessed lives, right? I mean, we were selling our house when we lived on the compound and we were moving to Atlanta and selling our house. I come home and Chad Neal's just pressure washing my house. Like I said, you can't have mine, okay? But like, I don't know. I've never pressure washed his house in February of 2020. Looking back in the summer, I thought I had COVID because I was dying, but I didn't because I got it in November. Uh, <laughs> but like Josh Veal comes into my house and he has to physically pick me up out of my bed and put me in his truck and take me to the hospital. You know, I mean, Jessica couldn't do it, one, because I'm heavy, and, and second, because, you know, we, we couldn't leave Ella. And so... You know, do you, have friend, do you have friends like that? I hope you do. I do. I do. I have, friend, I, have, I have true biblical friendship. We are locked in. We are knit together. I hope you have a friend like that. I really do. Third point. Almost done. So, a friend loves at all times. True biblical friendship is mutual. And then, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. So, phileo. It's the type of love in the New Testament that most Christians practice towards each other. You can go ahead and start flipping to John 15. This Greek term describes the powerful emotional bond seen in deep friendships. Phileo is a Greek noun meaning beloved, a dear friend, someone dearly loved or prized in a personal, intimate way, a trusted confidant held dear in a close bond of personal affection. Phileo expresses experience-based love. It is not shallow. It is deep. Okay? Phileo is the most general type of love in the New Testament, encompassing love for fellow humans, care, respect, and compassion for people in need. 
Phileo is the Greek term used for brotherly love between friends, but the Greek word for friends is philos. Okay, I'm sure I'm putting the accent in the wrong spot, but I'm up here and you're not, so philos. Okay? All right, philos. So when Jesus Christ was described as a friend of sinners in Matthew 11, philos was the original Greek word applied. When the Lord calls his disciples friends, philos was the word used. And when James named Abraham, named Abraham the friend of God in James chapter 2, he employed the term philos. Okay, John 15. All right, I'm going to back up to 12. 13 and 14 will be up there. I'm going to start at 12. This is Jesus talking. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Man, this scripture, this section of scripture is Jesus talking to his disciples again. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Uh, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Okay, 14 and 15, are all, they're jammed, they're awesome. It, it's its own sermon or sermon series, it really is, okay? We're just going to touch on a little part of it. All right, but 13 and 14, Jesus use, uses um, philos twice. Friends, can you imagine it? Can you imagine it? Friends with God. This was not, the, this was countercultural, okay? This was not how it was done. Rabbis were not, for, in, did not enter into friendships with their students, okay? And then, and then all, the, all the teachings on the Messiah and who he was going to be and how that relationship was going to go, friendship was never mentioned, okay? So this is wild stuff. I know you read it at first glance, might not seem so crazy. It's crazy, okay? And the fact that he's talking to him the way that he is. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus described the measure and quality of his love for his disciples to use as a pattern for the way that they should love each other. All right? Chris touched on it a, a lot last week about how we're, we should, we're going to be known by the world is how we love one another. It's this kind of stuff. His love is complete and of surpassing greatness, laying down its life. And it's the same for us. It's the same. Now, I have, Jesus said, I have called you friends. Jesus described, excuse me, the, again, the, the measure and quality of his love for them as a love that treats servants as friends. And in the relationship between a disciple and his rabbi of that time, it wasn't expected to be a friendship. Yet Jesus, the rabbi, called his disciples, his servants, friends very important. We can be friends with God. It's amazing. So in, in the thinking of, of the ancient world, a slave could be a useful and trusted tool, but could never be thought of as a partner. And it was possible that a slave and a friend might be of similar help, but a friend could, could be a partner in the work in a way that a slave never could. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now, this is the super heavy stuff that I'm not, that I'm not Again, maybe if I get another opportunity, if I don't blow this one, how's it going? Going all right? If I, and I don't screw this one up, I get another opportunity. Uh, we may come back and just, and just camp here, okay? But, you know, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. They were friends because they were obedient, though not perfectly so, right? The disciples, though not perfectly so, friendship with Jesus cannot be disconnected from the obedience to his commands, that's hard. That's hard stuff. Josh, you can come up. Spurgeon, Spurgeon on this, and we're, and we're done. 
okay? It must be active obedience. This is a direct quote. It must be active obedience. Notice that you are my friends if you do what I command. Some think it's, a quite, it's quite sufficient if they avoid what he forbids. Abstinence from evil is a great part of righteousness, but it is not enough for friendship. You know, do you know him? Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Do you know him? A friend loves at all times. True biblical friendship is a two-way street, and Jesus is a friend of mine. Let me pray. Father, thank you, God, for today. We love you. We're so thankful for your son and that we get to be friends with him, God. Thank you so much for making that way for us, God, that we can be reconciled with you through him. God, I, I pray for your children here within the sound of my voice, God, that they know what it's like to have a friend. A friend that sticks closer than a brother or a sister. A friend born for adversity. A friend that loves unconditionally, God. And Lord, I pray that if they don't have that covenantal, deep, biblical friendship, Father, they would turn to your son. Because he said to his disciples so clearly that we are his friends. Help us be obedient. Help us love one another. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.